parable of the blind man and the elephant. You know, you only understand the part that you can touch if you're if you're a blind man. The story of the elephant. So if you touch the trusk, touch the tusk or the trunk or the foot or the tail, you have a very different view of what you know what this creature is that you can't see. And and I think that's part of uh, what we get with the armchair quarterbacks is uh, they're they're trying to put a very complicated, very dynamic world into their worldview where they haven't uh, sat in these seats, where they haven't seen the political side of the world. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is the podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders to help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. You're about to watch another episode of Start the Week with Wisdom, which for those of you who are at home, if you have not seen this before, these are weekly episodes where we conduct an interview with a sitting college president or chancellor, and we want to talk to them about how they're navigating the challenge of this moment. We're in a really unique time and we want to focus on their leadership and unpack how they are making decisions, how they are navigating, and hopefully it will leave you with a sense of optimism, a bit inspired and give you a bit of hope. Today is going to be a special episode because we're getting a chance to hear from someone who we've met before, but is in a different place in their career. And we look forward to hearing some reflection and hopefully some more wisdom for you to inspire you through, throughout the week. Uh, so joining us is uh, Mark Becker, who is the president of Georgia State University and uh, been that for a little over a decade, I believe, and last year announced his plans to retire this summer. Um, and we want to have him reflect a little bit on his presidency and, and what, he's, what he's learned and what he can share with some other folks. So welcome, Mark. Glad you're here. It's a pleasure to be with you, both you, Bridget, and Doug. Thank you. So we usually start by getting a sense of kind of where you're at. And so how are you holding up right now? I'm doing fine. It's, um, you know, actually the CDC news last week was a, a big boost, I think, to all of us. Uh, you know, not only does it change uh, the conditions in the environment in terms of masks, et cetera, but it's really a boost to the science that these mRNA vaccines work and that, um, you know, we're getting closer to a world that we're much more comfortable in. That's great. Yeah, I feel like there is a sense of optimism right now. Um, so I think uh, the question I want to ask you is thinking about your career. Um, now you've you've been there for quite some time and um, we're sad to see you go. But we know that retirement, sound, it also sounds awesome. I mean, I, I like just so many things about it. Um, but I want to understand you as a baby president coming in on day one at Georgia State. Now you've uh, been at these. Uh, you've been at Michigan. You've been you've been around the, in various roles around the country. You come in, you as a leader that day, day one versus now. Where do you see the most change for you as a leader? Well, first off, you, Bridget, you know, change is evolutionary, so it's a slow process. So it's really hard to imagine who I was twelve and a half years ago when I started. But I'd say the thing that is um, most different now, if you will is I've gotten a um, much deeper understanding and appreciation for the complexity of these roles and therefore I've had to develop uh, considerably more talent, if you will, and skill and experience in being able to navigate a um, complicated world between you know, the politics and uh, life of a campus, uh, the politics of being in a public institution, um, in a large city in a um, southeastern state. So it's, um, you know, at the end of it, I would just say that um, 
probably um, a little less judgmental than I used to be and a lot more circumspect. I would say I've become um, even a more contrarian leader than I was when I started. And I've always fancied myself as a contrarian leader. I'm curious, does can presidents be better prepared or in other words, from, from what you just said, it sort of sounds like to some extent it's just through lived experience or at least a lot through lived experience that you can do that kind of growth. Is there, are there things that, that one can do and that, that the yeah. ecosystem can do to better prepare presidents to walk into jobs like that? Yeah, I think there's a lot you can do, Doug. Uh, you know, certainly when it, it does pay to read, uh, read books um, as well as um, inside higher ed and some other higher education publications. Yeah, I, I, and in fact, I begin every day scanning about five different newspapers on both local and uh, global. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot you can do to prepare. There's also short courses, meaning at one point in my career, I took a um, multi-day course in crisis communications. At another point, I took a um, multi-day course in negotiations. So uh, I think it's as you travel down the journey, you start to identify uh, where you think you would need to improve and um, seek, you know, um, uh, education, if you will, which is what we're all about in, in those areas. And then, of course, the experience is where all that reading and those short courses um, hit the road, the rubber hits the road. I'm curious about what, um, when people reach out to you as um, about the presidency and you're contemplating um you know, the advice to give them, because I think so, I know that you and I've talked about some, some folks who perhaps maybe shouldn't pursue the presidency and some who should, and the, the guidance and the coaching that you provide, can you give a bit more about what you say? Certainly. I, I would say, um, you know, one thing is you have to have courage. <laughs> um, you know, that the, these jobs are not for people that, um, who think the job is all about the title and the awards and the speeches and the ceremonies. Uh, th that's all the fluff that's around the boundary, but it's, at the end of the day, if you want to be a successful president, and certainly if you certainly if you want to uh, be a president who's going to uh, help your institution continue to evolve and adapt in, in a very changing and challenging world, and the 21st century is by no means um, static um, in any stretch of the imagination. You ha you have to have the courage of your own convictions, and uh, of course you have to understand uh, the culture of the academy. So you have to be able to have that balance of being a, a uh, engaging in shared governance and being a colleague at the same time, uh, you can't shy away that you are the chief executive of the institution. You have to lead. Mark, you obviously, um, when when people scan the higher ed sort of landscape, they tend to identify Georgia State as a place that has evolved maybe maybe faster and and uh, than a lot of other places. And I, I don't know whether you share that point of view, but but I'm curious about what the conditions were, have been at, at the university that, that sort of allowed that kind of maybe slightly faster than normal evolution. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about whether higher ed changes enough and, and fast enough and, uh, and sort of what the conditions might be that, that prevent it, uh, incumbency and certain other things. But I'm just curious, kind of when you think back to these 12 and a half years, kind of what what were the conditions that were there and what did which what did you tap into to sure. help speed it up? Yeah, so Doug, I really came to Georgia State with the idea of um, an experiment. And the, the it was not a, you know, as in science and the scientific process, experiments 
don't start from nothing. And so, uh, you know, in my career coming up through the ranks, as uh, Bridget alluded to earlier, I'd seen how NYU had gone from a relatively unknown private college um, near Greenwich Village, you know, in New York City to a premier institution with a global footprint and campus in China. Likewise, I remember when Washington, D.C. was a very different place than it is today, and Foggy Bottom was a place that nobody would ever go if they had a choice, and then to watch George Washington University just blossom and grow. And so, you know, the question, what I had seen was that, at least in the case of those institutions and Northeastern University in Boston as well, that in an urban environment, in those cases, private institutions have been able to transform themselves as their cities transformed. I asked myself the question in 2008, could the same be done in Atlanta with, at a public institution? And so that was part of the landscape. Um, and I think so that that gave me confidence that it was um, it was worth a try. And I, I think we've done pretty well. Uh, the other side, I would say, is a, a condition in the environment is uh, once you get to a certain level of status, uh, there becomes a fear of taking risk. And so the, there's one thing to transform something to be something much bigger and better than it's ever been, as opposed to, uh, you know, let's say just for the sake of argument, being at a top 10, 20 or 30 institution and needing to hold on to that status. And so it's a different type of mindset that you have to have in, when transforming an institution um, like was done at NYU, Northeastern, George Washington, Georgia State um, and others, as opposed to um, or, you know, Arizona State, same thing, as opposed to, um, you know, going back to my background at Michigan, Minnesota, you know, it's... It, Risk-taking there has to be viewed differently because there's so much to lose. So I'm curious, you know, uh, we heard a bit about what you've, what's been a significant and pr proud accomplishment for you in terms of the transformation, but I'm curious what has been the hardest thing that you've had to do um, as a president? Well, the hardest thing, Bridget, is we've had a lot of balls in the air and you got you to balance them all. I mean, you got to manage them all. So, you know, we're, we're probably best known, um, certainly to viewers and listeners here, of, for our work in the student success space. In fact, when we started, uh, student success wasn't even used as, as, you know, those two words were not the words. It was back about retention and graduation. So, you know, we, we've done a lot to, um, if you will, shape that space. But at the same time, we've nearly crippled our research funding. Uh, we've... Um, built, renovated, bought uh, more than 18 buildings. We've more than doubled our enrollment, including consolidation with Georgia Perimeter College, but we've also gone from less than 10,000 applications to this year will be over 25,000 applications for the freshman year. And so the challenge is, is being able to execute on all those fronts at the same time. It's, you know, we've, um, we, we get people that interview for jobs, um, deans and vice presidents, and they know one piece and they look at the other pieces and they sort of, in some sense, they get tired and almost become afraid about working in an environment like this. But uh, it is the challenges to keep all those balls in the air and to keep forward progress in all dimensions and not become um, too fixated on any one thing. Do you think it's, um, you, you've been very ambitious, as you said, on a bunch of different fronts. Do you think that's likely to be something that most institutions can pull off? I mean, I, I've, especially in eras of uh, constrained resources. I, I, I've wondered if we're going to see more institutions sort of narrowing their focus or, or at least uh, choosing more selectively to really kick into gear on a smaller number of things. How do you, how do you think about that? Okay, so Doug, I'm going to resonate with your point, but to disagree with the premise. Yeah, uh, so I, I become president um, of Georgia State January 1, 2009. 
summer of 2008, um, Lehman Brothers goes under, the stock market goes, doesn't hit, stock market doesn't hit its low of the financial crisis until about the second or third month of my presidency. I have not one, but two um, eight-digit um, cuts, meaning more than $10 million cuts, total of $40 million cuts in my first year. And look what we've done. So I, I, so I think that is, there is the problem is, I think in higher ed, there's way too much negative thinking. There's way too much of what we can't do. Uh, there's way too much, well, we don't have the resources. When the reality is we have to be clear about what our goals and our missions are and then align what we're doing with that. So that does mean that you're going to have to stop doing some things you've been doing. That's uh, going to mean you're going to have to make strategic investments in your future. And so I think the biggest challenge to uh, seeing the kind of change that we've seen and you've seen at some other institutions is a fear. It's, it's a fear of doing something different. And people are afraid of change. And, um, you know, if there's anything that um, is, characterizes my personality is, I'm comfortable with change. I'm comfortable with um, uncertainty. And I think in higher ed, we're, we're dealing with a lot of highly accomplished people who like to stay in a world where they feel comfortable. And in order for higher ed uh, to be adaptive and change to um, achieve the best possible results, people need to get outside their comfort zones and stay more mission focused and less concerned about what could go wrong. Now, I'm, I, I've seen too many times where the armchair quarterback critics have um, think they know better than institutional leaders. And um, I know that now that you're about to retire, you might be able to say more than you've been able to in the past. But um, for, for those who are critics of the institution, critics of leadership, um, what is the blind spot that you so often see that they are missing when people are trying to infer something behind actions at an institution or who, you know, just kind of go super negative. I'm just um, trying to leave you an open door. <laughs> Let me start off, just clarify. I'm not retiring. I'm stepping down as president, but I'm not leaving higher ed. I'll still be active for um, years to come. And um, hopefully we'll have opportunity to speak with both of you um, frequently and, um, and openly. Uh, but, you know, to your question, Bridget, you know, one of the, and this is why, you know, back in the first question, I said a little less judgmental and a little more contrarian is it, it amazes me when I see whether it's a newspaper story or it's a, a, a rumor spreading around campus where I know the truth and the disconnect is so huge. And there's, there's always this concept of on the spark part of the armchair quarterbacks and the, um, the pundits of the, the, this concept of the they. They are doing this, they, whether they is the administration, whether they is the government, whoever they may be. And um, you know, 99 times out of 100, if not 100 times out of 100, the, the speculators are, are way off base. Uh, they're, what they're doing is they're trying to fit a complex world into their mindset and their worldview. And um, they don't, you know, it's the, uh, the parable of the blind man and the elephant. You know, you only understand the part that you can touch if you're, if you're a blind man, the story of the elephant. So if you touch the trusk, touch the tusk or the trunk or the foot or the tail, you have a very different view of what, you know, what this creature is that you can't see. And, and I think that's part of uh, what we get with the armchair quarterbacks is, uh, they're they're trying to put a very complicated, very dynamic world into their worldview, where they haven't uh, sat in these seats, where they haven't seen the political side of the world, where they haven't seen. And when I say po political, I, I mean the campus, the city, the state, the nation, uh, the um, interplay between different higher education institutions, the competition for resources. Uh, so that's um, that's I guess what I'd have to say about that. 
So um, I know that you and I have talked about this before, and I just want to um, I want to frame it appropriately. So what I have noticed that has really stood out for me about your leadership is that you are one of the only people I've seen in higher ed who is the president of an institution that has enabled and actually emboldened someone else at your institution to have a fairly significant profile in the same sector. Most presidents, um, it's it's them, and that's it. And um, so the fact that you have had um, Tim Rennick um, out there in the in the public eye as much as you have, I find that interesting, and I'm wondering why that doesn't happen more, and what advice you could give to other presidents to enable that to happen. Well, so first, Bridget, I'd say I think without question, Tim's the most sought after speaker in all of American higher education. I don't think anybody gets more speaking requests than Tim, uh, and and deservedly so. But you know, I think from my point of view, is again, you know, not to um, you know take an often used phrase, but being a servant leader is about accomplishing the mission of your institution. You know, so in Tim's case specifically, he was an associate provost when I came here, and I came to Georgia State. And, you know, over time he grew to being one of the um, three senior vice presidents in the institution. Uh, so my job was to, you know, as, as always to, as, to surround myself with the most talented people I can find and empower them to um, have the maximum impact for the institution. And, um, you know, for better or worse, um, my ego is not fragile. I don't need to uh, have my name in print or be uh, seen more often than not. In fact, in my first year uh, as president, uh, you know, I remember our um, VP for communications at that point came in all excited about this new local newspaper story in the Atlanta paper that was saying nice things about me. And said, but haven't you read it? I said, no, I don't read that stuff. And she's like, well, why not? And I said, because I just got to stay focused on doing the right thing is if I get distracted by what they're saying about me, whether positive or negative, I'm going to I'm going to get off track. So I stay focused on what is the mission and delivering on that. And if um, if I can surround myself with not one, but five or 10 people who are um, become nationally and internationally prominent for what they do, that's our success. You know, that's my success. My success of a leader is not in making yourself the best known person. It's, the, it's what you do for your institution, your organization. It's funny, Bridget, I, I don't know if that's, um, Mark, you're the second uh, retiring president we've had in the last three weeks. And and the, the consistency of that message about sort of ego and sort of focus uh, what the job is about and and what the president's role is. You and Mary Marcy had a lot of saying a lot of the same things. And I, I'm just curious, like, how do you, is that something that you just, um, one exudes and, or does one try and drive that sort of, do you talk about that or do you just do it and behave that way? No, we don't. Pretty, yeah. We don't talk about it. I, th I think, you know, Doug, it's, it goes back to something I said earlier is, you know, what Bridget asked about people wanting to be presidents. And um, I, you know, my, my mental mindset for this actually got really clarified when I was a provost and I had to hire deans. And, you know, so in the last 15 plus years, I've hired a lot of deans, a lot of vice presidents. And, I, and it became very clear to me early on that when I was interviewing people to be deans in, in the very beginning, that there were um, there were a lot of people that wanted the title. They wanted to be the dean, but they didn't want to do dean. They didn't want to actually do the job. They, they wanted they wanted the, you know, to be up on the pedestal, to have this big title with this, you know, with a pay increase over what they get as a faculty member, et cetera. But when it came down to the, the hard stuff, 
you know, the really hard stuff like tenure and promotion, terminating people, uh, dealing with the fact that you may have individuals who uh, report up through to you who are bad people, you know, bullies, abusers, um, and abusers of all type. Um, you got to deal with that. And there's, the, the, so that's where it, it sort of segregates out is to, to what were there, why are people doing these jobs? And if they're, I think, uh, you know, the, the theme that you're resonating to are people that really want to do the job as opposed to have the title. So I, uh, I'm curious about what breadcrumbs you can leave for others as we, as you move to this next chapter. Um, what book do you go back to most consistently that has helped you as a president? Uh, probably my leadership by the late Stephen Sample. Um, as I said at the beginning, I've, I've fancied myself as a contrarian leader uh, because wherever the herd is going, it's probably not the right place, whether you're an investor in the stock market or whether you're a leader of an institution. Um, so that one, um, you know, another one that I'm, I'm very fond of, it's a little bit dated now, but I'm creating the f- future by Frank Rhodes, uh, written in the 1990s. Uh, but there's still a lot of really salient points in uh, Rhodes's book, um, Creating the Future. So those are those are two of what I'll call the oldies but goodies that I've, I've relied on um, over the course of my uh, roughly 20 years from being a dean, provost and president. And, and both of those books obviously were written by higher ed leaders. Is that, uh, is, is the, is the um, industry, the sector different enough that that's, or, 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 or distinctive enough that, that uh, higher ed leadership is, is worthy of its, of, of a real focus in and of itself? That's a good question. I, I've read a lot of leadership books, Doug, um, and um, a lot of books on organizational change and the like. And I think there's a lot that transports over. The uh, you know, the, the key is, and, and I, mean, I have this conversation with search firms all the time now. We've got the search firms, you want to hire a dean or you want to hire a vice president. And they ask me about the importance of higher education experience. And you know, I said, basically, leadership is leadership. But in higher education, you need to a, understand the culture. Uh, because you know every industry has its own culture, and you know, real estate's very different than finance, for example. And the other part is you need to understand that we're a highly regulated environment, and you have to be able to navigate in a regulated environment. And so, you know, but if you can fit, if if you can demonstrate the ability to work across different types of work cultures and and um, into sector cultures, and you can work in a regulated environment, then higher then you know that leadership is leadership. What um what has surprised you the most um, compared to what you expected about the presidency coming in um, from the reality? Uh, Bridget, I, I hate to say it, but there's not a lot that surprised me because I've been studying presidents since the mid '90s. You know, the uh, I got on the path to becoming a president uh, when I was an associate professor at the University of Michigan, serving on a committee that met with um, then President James Duderstadt. Um, on a monthly basis and participated in a year-long uh, program that he had focused on the, uh, in that, in that. And so um, from, from that point of being able to work closely with the president while an associate professor, at least from the point of view of observing up close and seeing the kinds of issues that President Duderstadt was uh, struggling with, that I've literally been st- um, watching leaders of all types, back to part of Doug's, I've watched leaders of all types, but I've also been watching presidents and um, you know, I see how presidents um, blow themselves up, step on landmines. And, um, you know, that's, there's way too many presidents that don't make it past the third year, um, in too many cases, not two years. So uh, 
I, I wouldn't say I've been surprised, but I've, what the, the big mistake I've seen that I um, tried to avoid all throughout my career is watching too often presidents um, make bad judgment based on personal relationships. And, um, you know, I've seen, you know, people close to them not willing to believe that it is what it is and, and all of a sudden glossing it over only to have them pay a severe price much later. Um, and some of those have been very high, high profile. Um, others people may not um, recognize, but I've seen. All right. So I would I would wrap with um, what's the best advice that you've ever received professionally that served you well? Uh, so it was really simple. It was when I was going off to become a dean. Um, I was um, asking a colleague, you know, or expressing to my a colleague, we were out for a run along the Huron River near the University of Michigan campus and um, expressed my, um, if you will, uh, doubts, concern about how I would do as a dean uh, relative to the dean that I worked with, the late Noreen Clark, who was an absolutely incredible leader and had um, skills that I'll never be able to match. And my colleague said, that's okay, Mark, you don't have to be her, you have to be you and um, go off and you know be true. So it's really, it's to the current generation, it just, it's be authentic and be an authentic leader is, um, you know, don't try to become a character you are, be the character you are rather than trying to become the character of a title that you have as a model. That's the perfect way to uh, end today. And so thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and for leading such a distinguished career and leaving the, the higher ed better uh, for then, then you found it. I think. I think the model and the example of Georgia State has uh, it continues to be vitally important to the future of higher ed that we have other campuses be able to do this kind of transformation. So, um, really excited to see what you do next. Thank you. Right. I look forward to seeing you down the road. I'm sure. All right. Well, thanks, Doug. I'll see you later, and everyone else at home. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.